It's a Friday episode of This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. We're wrapping up a very slow news week. Ha, ha, ha. Here in Northeast Ohio. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with my colleagues, Laura Johnston, Jane Cahoon, and Chris Wernowski, who all agree with me that this has been a very slow news week. They're not tired at all from all the stories we've been processing. Are you guys? How dare I'm, you? I am uh, impressed with the amount the just of news that we've been able to churn out that keeps coming at us and we're just surfing the wave, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> there is going to be a day when the, the fire hose of news is not coming at us like it is. And I dare say we will miss this because if you're going to be in our business, this is the time you want to be in our business. There's never been a time like this, at least not since back in the Watergate era. Let's get started. What happens now that the Cuyahoga Board of Health has recommended all suburban districts in the county keep their buildings closed and their classes virtual? This has been a train coming down the tracks. It seemed like for the past month, it was a certainty we would get here. The dam broke with Cleveland announcing it would do this and then Columbus and Shaker. With the Cuyahoga Board of Health saying we think it should be countywide, Laura Johnston, It seems like there's a good chance that a whole lot more districts will go down this path. Yeah. And this is a thing I think that all parents were terrified of. And we are just waiting to see what happens. Uh, We've had reporters calling around to every district in Cuyahoga County. I believe there are 31. We haven't gotten many answers. Like you said, Shaker plans to go virtual, though the announcement's going to come this afternoon. Cleveland Heights and University Heights uh, are going virtual. I think a lot of school districts are having frantic conversations right now because they put out these plans for hybrid models or every other day or afternoons only. And now they're rethinking that they always had a backup. Um, Then again, my school district sent out emails yesterday about crossing guards and before and after school care. So this is something that all parents are freaking out about, honestly. And I feel like there's a lot of rage because there was kind of this social contract that like, We'll take our kids, you know, kids will be out of school last spring. We'll all wear our masks and and get this under control. And then we can have some normalcy. And that didn't happen. All right. But but you have a very clear perspective on this. Your perspective is of the parent who wants their kid back in school. There's another perspective from many teachers who are deathly afraid of being on the front line of the virus. There's also, and I really would like to hear your perspective on this because it seems like it's missing. There's also the idea at the heart of this that bringing the kids back to school is a gamble that carries a risk. You can argue about what the risk is. Medical experts I respect are all over the map on it, but you can't argue that there is some risk. And my question here is, is any risk worth it with our children when having them stay home for nine weeks removes that risk? Well, I, 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 I'm not going to argue that there isn't a risk. There is absolutely 100% a risk. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't close the schools. I'm saying I think the rage is that we didn't do a better job controlling the virus because other countries have been able to send their kids back to school safely because they had community spread under control. And we as a country could not do that. So I think that's where the rage is. I, I, I completely understand the fear and I do not want people to get sick and die. So I understand the reasoning that doesn't take away the frustration of figuring this out. And, and nine weeks is one thing, right? Like maybe it will be nine weeks. If you tell me it's just going to be nine weeks, get through it. 
I mean, we're going to be able to get through it. But this has been an ever-changing finish line. And and I don't think anybody can tell you with any certainty that nine weeks will be under control and we'll be no. able to send our kids back. No, it's probably after the, the first of the year where that will become a reality. But, but when you talk about the rage, uh, and, and look, you saw both sides. You saw relief on social media last night that the board did this, and you saw rage that, you know, how dare you? But but the rage ought to be directed really at two places, right? It's the president who has been a disaster when it right. comes to being a leader on this, waffling all over the place, basically telling America lies about where we stand. I mean, it's like the worst performance in a national crisis probably in the history of the country. And our fellow citizens who decided that wearing masks was a political statement and didn't do it, which caused us to have the virus is spread. It should not be directed at the Cuyahoga Board of Health. No, no. And I, I completely agree with you. I'm going to name one more group of people that we can be mad at <laughs> is the health officials who said, don't wear masks in the first place. And I know you are the preacher on that choir. So, <laughs> but, but wait, 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 though that, but we got past that. We, we got it under control in Ohio. True. But I think there are people that latched on to that, and that's still their way of thinking. Yeah, I know. Look, they lied. I mean, it was the dumbest thing. We've talked about it. It was a dumb thing, too. I do think, though, the health board, look, we had problems with the health board in the beginning. They were being secretive. They they, they were really hard to deal with. And, and And like you would hope from any public body, they've been very responsive. They've provided much more data. Mm-hmm. They're much more accessible. And they did something yesterday that took guts, you know, to to come out and make that recommendation in the face of the guaranteed rage took guts. But I, I do think they're doing it because they want people not to get sick and I, die. No, and I totally agree. And they've talked about, you know, they talked about the high incidence in Cuyahoga County, which under the Centers for Disease Control is more than 100 cases per 100,000 residents. The good news is, and Rich Exner had a great story on that, is that we are going down. Like two weeks ago, we had about 17 new cases a day per 100,000 residents. We're down to 11.6, which is just barely over the state average. So if we keep going in that direction, we're going to be looking good through the fall. So I I hope that happens. I just so in nine weeks, you we might actually. <laughs> oh, we might. Really? I mean, Mike DeWine keeps saying, I'm aiming to the fall, and he is seeing clear evidence that his mask mandate in the red counties is working. That's right. one of the reasons it's dropping. So maybe by November, we we will, you know, I mean, there'll be nothing else going on in November. Right? I, I just, I just want to make the point that there obviously is risk with sending kids to school, but there is risk with not sending kids to school. I mean, there is issues with kids with developmental disabilities. There is issues with, with childcare there. I mean, can we make the point that daycares are allowed to go back to full capacity and they're closing schools? I mean, it seems like a contradiction. But, there are, but there are risks with- you, I, I, when people throw that out, it sounds halfway reasonable. But the difference in the risk is I send my kid to school, they get COVID, they get sick, they bring it home and people get sick and die versus having losing nine weeks of, of social socialization and things. I mean, you can recover from missing nine I just weeks. think it needs to be yeah. part of the entire conversation that that is not it's this is a very complex issue and I I'm still going to come down on yes I think our kids should stay home to protect people but it is not it's not an easy thing okay well me. there's some fire in this conversation today <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE
What is Mike DeWine's strategy for halting the spread of the coronavirus among inebriated bar patrons without putting the bars out of business? We're seeing this across the country, Jane Cahoon. Governors trying to deal with people drinking heavily at bars, taking off their masks, yelling, spewing virus everywhere and spreading it to hither and yon. So, you know, in some states like Michigan, they've said any place that makes more than 70 percent of their money from uh, uh, alcohol can't have inside sales. Mike DeWine took a, a different tack. What was it? Yeah, he wants the Liquor Control Commission to approve an emergency rule today that would ban the sale of liquor after 10 p.m. But anyone who orders their booze by 10 p.m. would would be allowed to consume it or finish consuming it until 11 p.m., which conjures up some visions of yeah. what last call is going to look like. And if the board approves it, it will take effect tonight. Uh, DeWine said that, you know, by and large, bars are com- um, complying with the social distancing and the other rules, but he's seen some, you know, examples of where there's just no social distancing, no mask wearing, and there's an inherent problem with bars because people drink alcohol and they let their guard down and there's close contact. And um, he said he very much does not want to close bars because that would be devastating, but, you know, he has to do something. So, and meanwhile, you know, we set a record of 1,733 cases on Thursday, and we've hit a high in hospitalizations this this week. Although, as we pointed out in our question, uh, Laura Hancock pointed out in her question during the briefing yesterday, we have no idea what the spread is from bars because the governor right. has released the contact tracing data, you know, under questioning by us, way to go, Laura Hancock, he, he said he'll have it next Tuesday. I hope he comes through. But- right. You know, what's interesting is that uh, Mark Bona and, he, and Annie Nikoloff did a story with the reactions of, of bar owners. And that was precisely the point that one of them made. He's like, OK, where's the science? Where is the contact tracing data that shows bars are responsible for the virus spreading? So I thought the, that was really interesting. Thing- Well, and the other thing they said, and there is real, this is grounded, is if most bar owners are doing what they're supposed to, why don't you just do a better job of policing the ones that aren't? Right, right. Why do this wholesale blanket that's going to put a lot of people into financial strain when you know that they're doing the right thing? I mean, what was the... uh, there was one Shane in there that said, "We're every employee is wearing a mask. Everybody's social distancing. Um, you know, yeah. Why should we that? be punished for the few bad apples? Basically, is what they're saying. Yeah, and and there's not really a good answer. I do, I do want to see that data. We've been asking for it for two weeks, so it'll be really interesting if it comes back and only five percent of the spread is really coming from from bars. You kind of think not, because why would he be so focused on it? But not one of his anecdotes." He loves to tell his anecdotes of the spread. He's like Stephen King in The Stand. But not one of them, I don't think, has been about a bar, right? It's always about, you know, some yeah, person. Yeah, I'm not recalling going that, a like barbecue. a wedding or a barbecue or a car ride or something. Yeah. Yeah. So if it's happening at bars, let's let's. I think see a winery evidence. might have been involved in one of them, but. Okay. All right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How far back in time do we have to go to find homicides and gun violence like we are seeing this year? And what's the cause of the rise? Chris Renaski, I'm not looking for like the specific year. The point really is we've been seeing a slow creeping over the past few years. And 
gun violence and homicide rates. But this year, we're seeing a fairly big jump. We we took a look at this, and what are the what do the numbers say? Trying like trying to figure out like why homicide rates go up is really difficult because what you have usually what happens usually is you have like police and experts trying to point to one specific thing that's causing it. So you know, is it guns? Is it poverty? Is it this? Is it that? And 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 after the Fourth of July weekend this year, which was a particularly violent weekend for Cleveland and and frankly a lot of cities around the country, you started to see a, a sort of creeping explanation for a rise in violence, which is the coronavirus. That that police and and these law enforcement experts are saying, look, you know, people are underemployed. People are you know looking for you know and looking for money people are anxious people are worried about the future people are uncertain that creates tension you know and and i think there's probably some nugget of truth in there about that um you can add in you know explosions of gun sales in recent years uh which you know generally leads to you know more illegal guns being in the street because not all gun owners are responsible gun owners and they get stolen um you know there's just a, a lot of sort of data points that you can throw into this equation that that sort of lead to this this explanation for why all of this violence is happening all of a sudden. Um, so, you know, so the answer is, I don't know the exact reason, but we can sort of, you know, police and, and law enforcement experts can kind of speculate that all of these variables kind of add up to a, a, a an uptick in, in murders and and gun violence. And that's why one of the reasons that the feds are sending in extra federal officers to help try and combat this and solve some of it. So and it was, that's it was, what they say. I, you know, it's it's it, one of the things that always always puzzled me. Many many years ago, I covered crime in a Pennsylvania city, and and you know, the mayor said something interesting at the time. It's like you know, it doesn't matter how many police we hire, people are still going to murder people, and you know, I. We forget that, you know, like some one of the main statistics that we look at when we write about uh, about violent crime is solve rates for homicides. And and that's fine. And I and I think that that does show something. And it, it is illustrative of, you know, how we use police resources and and the competency of those resources. But, you know, people are going to murder. And, and so. Well, know, wait, 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 wait. Let me push back, though. I mean, there is evidence that. That and this is the philosophy that Justin Herdman has used in the in his at- attacks on gun violence, that one person willing to shoot a gun can create mayhem, and that if you get if you get that shooter off the street, you stop future shootings. So solving the shootings can reduce future murders because look, the percentage of the population that's willing to aim a gun at somebody and fire is pretty small. And pulling those guys back and getting them off the street can make a difference. Whether their motives are pure or not, we could debate that till, till forever. But there is a theory there. So you're listening to This Week in the CLE. Did Ohio House members listen to Attorney General Dave Yost? Or did they just take a simple vote to bounce Larry Householder as House Speaker as they intended? And who's the new speaker? Jane Cahoon, Dave Yost was kind of doing some backstrokes yesterday after having issued an opinion 
basically saying we needed an entirely new law passed by both houses of the legislature and signed by the governor to get Larry Householder out of there. Uh, the, his follow-up was, you know, I, that, I was asked for an opinion and I just gave options. I wasn't telling him what to do, which, you know, the memo kind of seemed like it was telling him what to do. What did they do? <laughs> well, they didn't do what Yost told them to do. They, they took a really quick vote Thursday morning to, to bounce Householder. And they, they, um, it, this was the Democrats in the minority did make a, an attempt to try to bring forward a motion to expel him completely from the House. But the Republicans tabled that. They just basically took away his gavel. They don't seem interested in really removing him from office. But this all happened like right around the time that Householder and these four associates were formally indicted by a federal grand jury for this $60 million corruption scheme that we've talked about. Anyway, the then the Republicans caucused in private for, for some number of hours and, and came back in the afternoon after they wrangled over two candidates and they finally privately settled on, on Bob Cup, who is a respected former Ohio Supreme Court justice from Lima, who they hope is going to restore integrity to the speakership and to the house. And uh, so they publicly voted for him with uh, most of the Republicans voting for him. And I think all the Democrats voting, no, they don't trust any other Republicans at this point. But anyway, back to Cup, he seems like a really intelligent and humble and just a really nice guy. He talked about how his wife still makes him take out the garbage every Sunday night. He likes to mow his own lawn. He cleans out the cat litter boxes and he likes to garden. And he said, you know, if, if uh, he, he's told people that if I think I'm more than I am, they should tell me. So he wants to maintain his humility. So how much money did First Energy donate to his campaign? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it. This all shucks thing yeah. only plays so far, given how corrupt the House is. I, um, I I do think if they tried to expel Householder, then Yost is probably right. They would need a law. But I, I don't get the hesitance to do that. I mean, he has trashed the entire body. If you're in the House right now and you go out in public, you're lucky you have to wear a mask because... You don't have to answer people who come up to you and say you're a bunch of corrupt bums. Why wouldn't they get rid of them? Why, well, I mean, why would that be your party line I think there's a thing? feeling that you're undoing a vote of the people. And he's up for election. He's probably going to get reelected. So I think maybe they only want to deal with this once, you know. And, well, they can only do it once, yeah. right? You can only expel somebody for the same reason once. So if they right. expelled him now and he were reelected, they couldn't get yeah, rid of him. Yeah, <laughs> the only way they could make sure he doesn't come back is to impeach him, which is a whole other process with the trial, with the Senate and all that. So um, Cup, I think, indicated they could they could revisit it, like, you know, it, if he's reelected. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why aren't people wearing masks when they get together with friends and family for backyard barbecues and other gatherings? Laura Johnson, Mike DeWine has regaled us with one case after another where people get together, usually with family or friends, and infect everybody in sight and cause super spreading of the virus. We kind of looked at why that's happening. Why aren't people wearing a mask when they get together with family with whom they don't live? What did we learn? That this is just really not in our nature to protect ourselves with our family or close friends. That 
it's comforting, especially in a time of stress like the coronavirus, to be around people who know us the best. And we just don't think about protecting ourselves that way. We're social animals. They give us a sense of security. And I also think that we figure we know our friends. We know that they're not sick. And so we don't feel like we have to take these precautions, which is very different than going into a store or a business and having no idea who you're around. Now, this logic falls short when you realize that up to half people who have coronavirus don't know they have it. They don't have any symptoms. So how do you change that? I mean, what what, what can you do to get people to wear masks? I mean, you and I have both done this. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, 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 I was with some family members and now thinking back, think, man, that was really, really dumb. I could have... I- I thought about this and it is, it feels so strange. And the last time I had, I had dinner with my family, um, with my parents and my sister and her family, we ate outside, which made me feel a little bit better. And we were almost like all the kids were outside. We were outside and that does make me feel a little bit better. And you're just very, it's, it's becoming ingrained with you. Like hugging feels weird at this point. Right. So like, because you've just gone so long without touching people that are not in your household. So I I feel like we're getting to that point where we're being a little more thoughtful about it. It's just, we hear these stories, you know, like the person that was in a car ride and they weren't wearing a mask and, um, people who are having bridal showers and baby showers. And, and so I don't know if there's a degree how how many people are at these gatherings? If this is something that people with their parents or if this is like, you know, all their friends inside. We don't know a lot of the details of these gatherings, but it's something we should all be really aware of. And you just don't want to wear a mask when you're inside your house. That's the other part that just, I think, feels awkward. Well, and food is a big part in a lot of parties. So think about that. You're not wearing a mask when you're eating and drinking. That's the issue with bars. So it's it's a tough situation. Yeah, it's a good story. Uh, it's on our website. People should check it out. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm going to butcher the word, but why is Governor Mike DeWine getting involved in the controversial debate about hydroxychloroquine, the malaria drug that is completely debunked as a coronavirus cure, even though President Donald Trump keeps spreading misinformation to tout it? This became a thing yesterday, Jane Cahoon. What is the thing? Yeah, I think we could have a lot of fun speculating about this one. First, as you said, even though Trump continues to tout this drug, the FDA has cautioned against using it outside of a hospital setting or clinical trial because there's a risk of heart rhythm problems. And studies have basically shown it's not effective against the coronavirus. But based on that, apparently, the state pharmacy board approved a rule this week that that would that wouldn't allow hydroxychloroquine to be sold in Ohio as a treatment for coronavirus unless the board's executive director signed off on it. Um, It did make an exception for for clinical trials, though. But on Thursday morning, DeWine issued a public statement calling on the pharmacy board to to hold off on this. He he, uh, made a big deal of the fact that the FDA commissioner had been on TV that morning saying that prescribing this drug should be a matter between a doctor and a patient. So a short time after he did that, the, the board backed off the rule and they, they vowed that they're going to study it further. And then and DeWine, 
DeWine was clear that he doesn't have a position. He's not doing what Trump did. Yeah, saying, this is a useful drug. He said, that's not my job as governor. I don't know if it works. Yeah, or not. In a I, way, he's sort of trying to have it both ways. I, I don't know um, what you guys think, but he, he did elaborate on this at his coronavirus briefing on Thursday afternoon. And he, he said, yeah, I'm not a doctor and a, or a scientist. Um, but he just said, I think they didn't get enough public input that this was a flawed decision. And we, we really need to, to vet this. And he noted that the drug is being used in, in some hospitals. But, you know, one reporter, I thought, smartly challenged him on this, saying, like, why wouldn't you take a position on this drug? It's been studied, and it's basically been debunked as a coronavirus treatment. And then he just kind of repeated that, you know, he wasn't a scientist, he wasn't a doctor, and he wasn't telling the board what to do. He just wants a thorough examination of the issue. Yeah, I think that was Andrew Welsh Huggins of AP, and I love the way he put it. He he had like this <laughs> pausing way. He goes, you know, I want to get back to what you said. Yeah. Why? Why? You're, why wouldn't you as governor have a position? It's like everybody should have a position on this. Why wouldn't you say we should be using things that are proven to work? And and DeWine did the dance. He clearly, look, we've talked about this. DeWine is trying not to offend the president because he's gotten some stuff out of the president to help fight coronavirus and other things. And, but so and many of his other time, decisions are based on science, you know. And so that's why I said we could just have fun speculating on this one. Yeah, this this is Chris Wernowski. I the mere fact that you know we're we're talking about Mike DeWine and science and like let's let's put a pin in Mike DeWine saying that there uh, we need to respect the relationship between a doctor and a patient. I'm sure that might be the, <laughs> the I basis saw some of some, snark about some that on, on social media yeah. in, in future legislation about a certain issue that this state. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll leave that one there. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Can the dad of someone who died of a fentanyl overdose get damages from the people who supplied the illegal drugs? Chris Wernowski, we have an interesting civil suit that's been filed this week. I can't imagine this is the first time this has come up in the history of illegal drugs, but but it's an interesting case involving fentanyl. Yeah. So back in 2015, a young man by the name of Thomas Rowell, I believe that's how you pronounce his last name. And if I'm butchering it, I apologize. Um, he he died of a fentanyl overdose after he bought some drugs from a, an Akron a dealer by the name of Leroy Steele. And Leroy Steele was convicted of 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 selling drugs to somebody who passed away. And and what they found through this investigation is that he bought these drugs over the Internet from a Chinese company that was shipping fentanyl to the United States. Um, the government has gone after a father and son duo in China in this 43 count indictment that was filed in 2018, basically accusing them of running a a drug organization that that pumps fentanyl into the United States. Now, fast forward to this week, the father of Thomas Rao filed a lawsuit against this father and son duo, basically saying they are civilly liable for providing drugs to a dealer who sold drugs to my son who died. And it's unusual in the fact that, you know, these two men, this father and son duo are still in China 
they haven't and probably won't be extradited to the United States. And it'll be next to impossible to actually prosecute them criminally on these charges. So, you know, the fact that, you know, they can't do that is going to make it very difficult for them to serve them with court documents and, and, and to actually hold him civilly liable. But I, I don't think that that's totally the point. I think. So is it just a symbolic gesture to try and get someone to be accountable for irresponsible behavior that led to this guy's tragedy? Kind of. I mean, you know, my guess is that the attempts for, you know, international, you know, some sort of police guided attempt to arrest these two people, I, you know, I don't know that that's going to stop. I mean, this was this was a pretty big case that that captured international attention because, you know, this Chinese father and son duo were were dealing a significant amount of, of drugs into this country. And it was creating a lot, you know, I mean, a lot of people have died from that. And, and, and I think, you know, I, I doubt the hunt for these two people has stopped, but you know, the, the fact that, you know, they, they won't get extradited from China poses a big hurdle for that. So I don't think the fight is going to stop with this. And, and I, and I think, you know, this father is, is whose son died from this drug, you know, I think maybe he wants some sort of closure on this and, and that might come in the way of, of, of maybe some sort of, you know, resolution in this lawsuit. You know, okay. right? so we'll, we, we'll we shall to, see. We'll have to leave it there. It's this week in the CLE. We're not going to get to the question about the health dangers of the first presidential debate. We'll have to leave that for next week. I hope you all have a great weekend. And I want to say, Laura, Chris and Jane, how much I appreciate what you bring to this podcast every week. It's a joy to talk to you. And it's a joy that a lot of people are sharing. The audience for this thing is going up every single day. So have a great weekend. Come back Monday and we'll uh, have another episode of This Week in the CLE then. 